There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey. For both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project. Our mission is to provide clarity, support, and empowerment to parents who are concerned and frustrated with the content and culture of the public schools. We achieve this mission through the creation of educational and entertaining media and the development of supportive communities. Continuously building a more detailed picture of what genuine self-directed education can look like. We are determined to pursue this mission because we understand the dangers of indoctrination, toxic school culture, and short-sighted education policies. And we deeply value intrinsically motivated learning, autonomy, and choice in education. And please remember the three important facts we first tried to share when we started in 2009. The schools will not improve. Higher education will not improve. The political conversation about these institutions will not improve. Only we can improve. So let's begin. So I do have a definition of education I like a lot and that I, I share with people. And again, it came from John Taylor Gatto. He thought about this question way longer than either you or I have thought about it. Gatto says, whatever an education is, it should make you a unique individual, not a conformist. It should furnish you with an original spirit with which to tackle the big challenges. It should allow you to find values which will be your roadmap through life. It should make you spiritually rich, a person who loves whatever you're doing, wherever you are, whomever you are with. It should teach you what is important, how to live, and how to die. Wonderful, beautiful, very all-inclusive definition of education. So I've taken the liberty of condensing what I think of as the spirit as of Gatto's definition. And I have my own one-sentence definition, which is, an education is the capacity to author your own life instead of merely accepting the one that's handed to you. Hello, friends. Hello, my pals. This is Brett. Welcome back to The Essential School Sucks. Today, we begin our third section of shows, and this collection will be called What It Means to Be Educated, where we will take a closer look at the principles of self-directed, self-sufficient learning and critical thinking. If you are just joining us, if you are new to The Essential School Sucks, I am running through what I believe to be, after careful examination and curation, 50 of the most important episodes from the 12-year run of the School Sucks podcast tailored to people, especially parents, who are newly concerned, frustrated, and angered by the condition of the public schools. I've broken these 50 shows into five categories. The first 10 were called The Real Problems with Public School. The second section was called Leaving institutional schooling and finding educational alternatives. We are now on to the third, what it means to be educated. And we will springboard from here into 10 more shows on media and information literacy. And then we will finish. And so far you're like, wow, none of this was taught in public school, uh, especially this last section, those last 10 shows, which will focus on self-knowledge and personal development. So here we are 40% of the way through. Thank you for your participation. This section of shows was affectionately named after this first episode with Blake Bowles. Blake is an authority on self-directed learning. In fact, he wrote a book called The Art of Self-Directed Learning. Today, we are going to put a definition to genuine education and contrast that to what is often considered, wrongly so, but considered to be synonymous with education, schooling. 
If you want to learn more about how you can support the School Sucks Project and help out with the production of the Essential School Sucks and acquire access to numerous benefits, bonus shows, and behind-the-scenes conversations, check the show notes, please. Also remember, if it is applicable to you to investigate our partner, Praxis, there's information about that in the show notes as well, including how you can get a free book on their secrets and strategies they have used for many, many years now to help young people find a path around college. That book is called Forward Tilt. It is by Praxis founder Isaac Morehouse and Praxis graduate Hannah Franklin. Thank you for your time and attention. This is The Essential School Sucks number 21, originally released March 25th, 2018 as podcast 551, What It Means to Be Educated with Blake Bowles. Here we go. This is Brett. Welcome back to the show. Today is March 24th. I created this episode in collaboration with author and educator Blake Bowles as a resource for people in my audience who are looking to do some outreach on the topic of educational alternatives and the importance of self-directed education. Those are two of the things that we focus on here. So this could be the very first episode of School Sucks Podcast that you've ever heard. If that's the case, welcome. Thank you for listening, and I hope you find today's show educational and valuable. It means it was passed along to you from somebody who's hoping you will take uh, an hour. I'm really trying to hold this to an hour uh, to learn more about these topics, and I would certainly value your feedback. I can be reached at brett at schoolsucksproject.com. Now, does the title of the show bother you? I understand if it does. Many days I look at our website, and I wish nine years ago when I started this, I had named it something else. At the time that I created this show, I was about 30 years old. I had almost 10 years of experience as a professional educator, and I was reflecting on that experience, and I remembered that the number one pronouncement from students when asked to share their feelings on the school experience was, it sucks, which is a shame because allegedly it's a service for them. I think the title of the show was a way of amplifying that message because, boy, when I was 12, 14, 16, struggling in school, I think it would have been really helpful for me to hear an adult validate a lot of the feelings and experiences that I was having. But it goes further. One of the things that school sucks away from young people is time. Every year, younger and younger kids who need to be playing, exploring, moving, adventuring, and in the process, building confidence, accumulating successes, learning about themselves, are just being given more and more homework. If you're willing to view school as that kind of an opportunity cost, you can see how it continues to suck away Autonomy, curiosity, creativity. Kids are given less and less time to explore and develop those things today. School's also expensive. One of the things that people like to say is that public school is underfunded. That's why it sucks. Not enough money. Throw more money at it, it will be better. So the numbers 
that back this statement up are usually federal department of education spending. What does the federal government spend on education every year? And then how does that compare to something like defense? Oh, look how small it is. John Stewart wrote in his book, America, Democracy in Action, probably almost 15 years ago, that uh, public education is something that the federal government tries to pull off for the cost of one fighter jet. But that's terribly misleading. And you probably know that. Almost all funding for public school comes from the local and state level. The cost of public education, it goes up every year. It's very hard to argue, though, that the product is improving. Forcing people to pay for public school, whether they use the public schools or not, socks money and opportunity away from the process of developing educational alternatives. So that's why we call the show that. And I should also add that when I started the show, I didn't think it would go on that long. I, I just kind of needed a platform, an outlet to get all these frustrations off my chest, the things I was experiencing at work. And, um, you know, I always loved broadcasting, entertainment, talking into a microphone and having people listen. So it was uh, well-suited for me, the podcasting platform. I was really, really fortunate. And I'm just endlessly grateful that I had this motivation at a time when this kind of technology was available. So I wasn't stuck, you know, on a street corner with a sandwich sign. Nobody takes that guy seriously. And he might have some really important things to say. He might actually know when the world is going to end. But people have decided that the sandwich sign is just not the most persuasive medium. So anyway, yeah, it was great that podcasting came along when it did, and I was able to embrace it. And what happened was, instead of me just in a classroom with 12 kids, 15 kids, working with a student one-on-one -on, -one on like college admissions or something like that, maybe influencing somebody here and there, and these limited opportunities to do so, suddenly I could project a signal to whoever wanted to receive it. Like the bat signal, you know, they put up the bat signal and Batman comes. Or that movie where um, Kevin Costner gets rid of his corn to build a baseball field to get baseball players from the 1910s to come play at his house. What I did turned out to be like that, but I would argue even more practical than uh, the Kevin Costner project there. The signal that I was sending was problems, and it started to attract to me people who are already living in the solutions. They were parents, educators, psychologists, entrepreneurs, self-teachers, most importantly, self-teachers. And before long, we were talking about things like critical thinking, personal development, and self-education in almost every episode. So I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity, but also to all the people who came to share what real education is. And my guest today is a prime example of that. Folks, education is a wonderful thing. And school is not always education. You spent 12 years in public school, and people were teaching to you five hours a day at least for those 12 years. How much do you remember from that experience? Was that the optimal use of that time when you were in a really prime period of life for absorbing new information? That's up to you to decide. So in that phrase, school sucks, what we're, what we're, what we're hinting at there is that Education, specifically self-directed or learner-driven, intrinsically motivated education, is a wonderful thing. And here we try to promote that however we can, because I believe it leads to happier, healthier, and more successful children. And we all want that. So if today's show was passed on to you as a primer on these topics, I hope our presentation is informative. We're going to go over all the basics. And I hope nobody feels any judgment. You know, like if your kids go to public school, I understand almost everybody's kids do. I did. I went to public school for 12 years, and my dad knew it sucked. My dad was the chairman of the school board. He was reminded of this fact almost every day during that period. So yeah, no judgment. It is completely normal to send your children there. But that is one of the things that Blake Bowles and I are determined to change. So we try to spread and amplify this message uh, the best we can.
And today's show, I believe, will also be helpful for people who don't have a lot of leeway with educational options. Your children have to go to public school for one reason or another, or at this point, you can't see a path for them out of public school. I think you'll be able to walk away from this show with some ideas about how you can improve their overall experience, and that's uh, really important to me as well. So thank you for listening. Thank you for giving us a chance. If you're a regular listener, this makes a fine review of some of our core topics. It was really great to get a new voice in on a lot of the subjects that we've been talking about for years, especially if that voice is Blake Bowles. He is so well-studied and articulate on so many of these ideas. Uh, it was uh, a privilege to have him on the show. And if you enjoy this conversation you want to learn more about Blake, episode 550 of the podcast is an introduction to Blake and his work. His website is blakebowles.com. Mine is schoolsucksproject.com. Please visit the show notes for this episode where you'll find links to lots of related resources. Okay, thank you so much for listening and take care. These are the days that bring you meaning. I feel the stillness of the sun and I feel fine. Blake Bowles, welcome back to School Sucks Podcast. Brett, great to be here. So how was your week? You've been on quite the speaking tour. I've been on a little speaking tour in Northern California and spoke at little alternative schools, one public alternative program. And it's exhausting, but it's it's great. There's nothing like actually talking to real people and, and getting out of digital land for a while. What were your talks about? It's about uh, thinking about alternative education for parents who are not yet making the leap, but they're looking into their options. And about a lot of reading that I've done recently about parenting itself. And there's just a lot of overlap between how we parent and how we educate. And so I'm starting to explore that territory. Well, that's a nice segue into what we're going to do here today. I'm really interested in creating a portable show, something that the people who've listened to School Sucks for a while and have already bought into these ideas that we're promoting can pass along to people who might just be dipping their toes into this whole world of alternative education and self-directed learning, or even people who have made it to the, to the place where they're like sitting on the fence, maybe, maybe getting ready to take that plunge. Um, I think you're the perfect guy to do this with since your work is so similar in so many ways to what we do at School Sucks. I thought we could just basically run through the essentials of this topic and we can provide people some information, but we can also be, you know, we'll say it up front, we can be persuasive because we're both strong believers in uh, alternative education and self-directed learning. I am ready to inform and persuade. Awesome. So one of the first questions that I wanted to put to you, and it's a very important topic of exploration on my show, the difference between school and education. This is something that we talk about a lot. And since we're going to spend most of our conversation talking about what we think real education is and what it means to be educated, we can just jump right into school for now. And I would ask for your take on the current, but also maybe a little bit on the historic school problem. Sure. So I like John Taylor Gatto's approach, which is school is something that is done to you and, and education is something that you must take. Right. And so you can go to school and get an education. But of course, there are so many people who go to school and don't get an education. And I was just talking about this uh, last night, how for most of human history, education has come through real world challenges and only in the past 100, 150 years, depending on who we're talking about. That's when we've started conflating the terms. And so education is lifelong. It's, it's deeply historical. And school is just this like 
weird institutional artifact, this blip on the, the geological timescale of human history. Uh, and and yet it's come to say, take such precedence. It's incredible, the, the power that it has over our lives. Now, in the past, I've had some certainly conspiratorial ways of talking about the school problem and the history of public school in the United States. I think as I've done more to understand the complexity of that issue in recent years, that's a little better metered today. But how do you explain that? Because it must come up in these talks that you have. You know, I'm very anti-conspiracy theory, not in the sense that I don't think that conspiracies exist, but I just don't feel like that narrative really helps people make a here and now decision about their kids' education or their own education. And so I just, I don't bring it up. But, you know, I read Gatto's Underground History of American Education uh, back in college. I thought it was very persuasive. But if I just say, if your kid is bored or unengaged or, you know, getting bullied or, you know, just learning bad things instead of good things in school, that's the only excuse you need to start questioning the school system. You don't need to believe that it was put together by industrialists in the late 19th century uh, for the purpose of creating pliable workers. Like, sure, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. And school has evolved pretty significantly over the past 100 or 150 years. Anyways, mm-hmm. I don't feel like it really serves me or most people to make the uh, yeah, yeah school is is created by this shadow government type of argument. Uh, I just focus on the here and now. You know, all I would say about it, uh, because, you know, people who start wandering through my website would find a lot of information on this. I think the the best nutshell approach is I read a lot on the history of school. And at the time, I kind of organized it into a story of good and evil, that bad people created this system to, in, in many ways, control or harm the innocent. And that lacks a lot of historical context. I was very, very heavily involved in this study in 2013. And then in 2014, I read a book by Thaddeus Russell called The Renegade History of the United States. And it talks about the condition, the social condition of America in the 1800s. And, you know, lots of groups of people who were coming to the United States, they were not assimilating (laughs) in an expedient way. And there was a lot of concern. And part of, you know, the school project was for it to have a standardizing function because the population of the United States was changing very rapidly. There was an influx of people who did not buy in to the American culture or American ideas. And school was a kind of forge that at the time people believed was absolutely necessary to create a more homogeneous culture. So it doesn't really have to have, I think, that dynamic of good versus evil or ill-intentioned versus innocent, or even conspiratorial. It's just the way things happened, you know, 150 years ago. And there's, you know, exciting ways to tell that story. But in simple terms, I think it was just the efforts of a group of people who did have a lot of control uh, to standardize and homogenize society for the sake of social order. And I don't even think that that's terribly controversial. You've said that school has changed a lot in the last 150 years. But in many ways, it's actually still quite similar. Yeah, the pedagogy is still pretty similar. Although everyone has iPads now, uh, it's still pretty one way. Uh, Yeah, there's group projects. Yeah, there's the internet. There's, you know, these these little things that have made more autonomy and uh, more independent projects possible. Uh, But 
yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not going to stand up very far here, Brett, to to say that school has changed significantly for the better. I, I just think it. Anyone who says the school system that was created in the late 1800s is the same one we have today is overgeneralizing. But if we were to make some conclusions about school, using Gatto's idea that it is something that is done to you, it is not self-directed, there is not a lot of control as far as the learner is concerned, or a lot of appreciation for learner feedback in that process because it's public, it has to be all things to all people. It is in many ways impersonal. This obviously, I mean, people out there are adults and they can think about how they've learned things. It usually requires a fair degree of intrinsic motivation, a, a desire from inside to learn something, and then they kind of pursue it in a self-directed way. Education can certainly work that way for young people too, but that is not happening enough in school. So the second question, very open-ended question, very broad. What does it mean to actually be educated? Uh, I love this question because it's really thorny. And you know, the way that we mostly talk about education, if I say my friend's very well educated, we talk about degrees and diplomas. You, know, you think she has a master's degree. But that quickly falls apart when you imagine uh, the many people you might know who don't have many formal credentials and feel very highly educated to you. Or when you run through a few thought experiments about a PhD, a PhD student who does five years of a program and then drops out before writing his dissertation. You know, right. obviously this person has been educated, has learned, and has, for one reason or another, not obtained the credential. And so it can't just be about diplomas and degrees. Um, it could be about just marketable job skills. Uh, essentially, an educated person can get a job and can get paid decently. But as soon as you start going down this, this thinking of all education is vocational training, then, you know, why do we consider history and literature to be part of, of education traditionally? Why do you consider right. a very well-rounded person often to be an educated person, somebody who you want to hang out with, you want your kids to spend time with? You know, if all education was just vocational training, then obviously we'd be missing out on a, a huge uh, part of human experience. And, you know, and then sometimes I, I remember I went through this process myself of, of trying to, like, come up with a good, succinct definition for education. For a while, I just said it's whatever you need to do to become an effective adult in the world. And who can argue with that, right? Effective adults. Uh, the problem is that it doesn't mean anything. There are so many different ways to be an effective adult. There are so many different paths that that renders that definition essentially useless. Um, and so I do have a definition of education that I like a lot and that I, I share with people. And again, it came from John Taylor Gatto because you know, he thought about this question way longer than either you or I have thought about it. And so I've got that quote right in front of me. May I read it? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, Gatto says, whatever an education is, it should make you a unique individual, not a conformist. It should furnish you with an original spirit with which to tackle the big challenges. It should allow you to find values which will be your roadmap through life. It should make you spiritually rich, a person who loves whatever you're doing, wherever you are, whomever you are with. It should teach you what is important, how to live, and how to die. So, like, wonderful, beautiful, very all-inclusive definition of education. It just has one big problem, which is that it's really freaking long. And when you're at your next cocktail party, you know, and somebody says, what does education mean? You're not going to bust out your John Taylor Gatto reference card. I might, mm -hmm. uh, you mm -hmm. might, but most people will not. <laughs> um, 
So, so I've taken the liberty of condensing what I think of as the spirit as of Gatto's definition, and I have my own one-sentence definition, which is an education is the capacity to author your own life instead of merely accepting the one that's handed to you. And so Excellent. you can go to the best schools, you can go to the top colleges, you can you know, get straight A's, do what your teachers tell you to do, what your parents want you to do, and you can still come out the other side uneducated because you have not yet authored your own life. And right. conversely, you can do nothing that looks like formal education yet become educated. And so uh, if you can like buck the tides, if you can push against massive peer pressure, if you can not just become uh, a conformist, you know, or, or if you want to conform, you do it out of choice. Uh, you know, you become an accountant because you've looked into your options and you're like, an accountant seems like uh, a really good fit for my personality and my, you know, where I want to live and how much money I need. Instead of just being an accountant because your your dad told you to be an accountant, then you are making an educated choice. But if you're just following, you know, what your peer group's telling you to do, what your parents, uh, what you know, whatever news people are telling you is going to be the next hot career then I argue that that's not really an educated thing to do. So in making this distinction between school and education, we can say that to be educated is to develop and harness the capacity to author your own life. And with that, I think there's a certain amount of adaptability that comes into that and a confidence that you have the skills to change direction if necessary, if you want to go on a new path, or you have the ability to learn the skills to go in a new direction. School, on the other hand, is more about accepting a script. Not that there's no autonomy in a schooled life, but it's 15,000 hours of training in basically following a script, basically staying on a set of tracks. And there's variety of tracks and scripts, but you are not the author of any of the ones that you really have access to. And following a script, following a track is fine, but you need to buy into it. You need to know why you're there. It needs to be relevant and meaningful and be connected to some goal in your near future. And so a lot of people, when we start criticizing school, I think throw the baby out with the bathwater. And this is what happens sometimes with unschooling. You think, all right, my kid has been you know, oppressed by these school structures for too long. No more classes, no more teachers. You know, those are the things that do harm. And that's, that's not it. Uh, classes are important. Teachers are important in so many realms of life. If you want to learn formal science, if you want to go through physics and get up to a, a point where you can do research, you need to follow a curriculum. Absolutely. Yeah. But if it's chosen, if it's chosen, then it will be absorbed so much more quickly. That's that's the whole principle behind self-directed learning, behind what I consider unschooling uh, is is choice and consent. That's where education happens, along with a critical understanding of what you're doing and why. That's right. You need to have context. And, and most kids, most young people have had context for what they're learning for most of human history, that that is the water that we swim in. That's that's our default operating software. And today, there is so little relevance. Everything feels disconnected. Right. I really learned this uh, as a history teacher, 
you know, the, just the a lack of causality from one topic to the next. But there's also very little integration from subject to subject. I interviewed a teacher from the Days of Wonder School in Ohio recently, and she was talking about that kind of curricular integration that they do there. So kids can, you know, make meaning across different disciplines, which I think is, is really important. It's not like, you know, from cube to cube where everything is completely disconnected. And Paul Goodman wrote a book called Growing Up Absurd. And that's what it feels like when everything is so siloed. And that's why I think some schools that are still considered traditional schools, but uh, do something a little bit different with how they teach, like Colorado College, uh, they use mm. the block system. They only teach one thing at a time. And you just study it intensively for a couple of weeks. Um, even that, you know, it's not that radical of a change. Uh, but the fact that you, you don't have to shift gears uh, multiple times a day uh, and you can just completely immerse yourself in one thing for a brief period of time. That's a huge step forward. And so maybe that's what I was saying when I said school has changed and improved a bit because there are a nice diversity of alternative schools, alternative colleges. It's not this monolithic system that that we critics of education sometimes paint it out to be. You know, in a, in a final distinction, I, I really feel like I have to mention this because it's uh, a subject of deep study for me lately. Uh, it's something I'm preparing to do a show on this weekend. There's this current controversy in public schools around gun violence. And I want to talk about this in a way where I'm not making any political statement or, or taking sides. It's just a, an observation as somebody who's you know concerned about young people and a promoter of self-directed education and obviously a critic of school something that has become very, very apparent in, in this whole conflict. So right now, over the course of the month of March, there have been a number of demonstrations and student walkouts. There's something, again, this kind of speaks to the distinction between the educated person and the schooled person. There's this teen spirit, this kind of uh, self-assertiveness, this desire to have a purpose. Uh, I think we can see that in a lot of what's happening in this movement, that people want to get out there and they want to feel as if they have self-efficacy. They want to make a difference. But what's discouraging about it is that their revolution seems to be to ask you know, the political system to make changes, right? So again, it's just like the same kind of tracks, the same thing that you would learn in a, in a ninth grade civics class. And they're getting a lot of attention right now because... They're either promoting an agenda that's politically popular or, maybe more importantly in this day and age, politically divisive, right? It mm. makes headlines. Mm -hmm. It enrages mm -hmm. people. So attention is being given to these kids as long as they stay on the tracks that are laid out in front of them, you know? So there is this great, exciting spirit, you know, of wanting to do something meaningful, but then it just winds up on, on the same path. And if they strayed off that path, they wouldn't have that voice anymore. They wouldn't have that attention. If instead of saying, uh, you know, what's the um, politically divisive or politically popular thing to say, if they said, oh, well, uh, maybe we shouldn't go to school. Maybe this is too dangerous. Maybe education should work some other way. Uh, the spotlight would shut off and the cameras would go away very quickly. So I saw something really encouraging. And at the same time, I saw something discouraging. So like the natural spirit of young people versus the kind of schooled mindset stopping them from from going any further with this motivation that they seem to have. Yeah, I went to Berkeley for college, and that's the epicenter of protesting for the sake of protesting. And so mm. I, I definitely witnessed a lot of, of what I considered futile protests or self-aggrandizing protests. 
And I, I haven't tracked uh, these recent student protests very closely. I mean, I think that, you know, you want everyone wants to feel fundamentally safe. I mean, that's our hierarchy of needs uh, in, in the places where they work and study. Though obviously this is an important topic. Um, but I feel like it's it's sometimes easier to argue for very large national issues, which are pretty much out of your hands and out of your control. Uh, than it is to argue and make change for an extremely local issue, uh, which is actually something that will, you know, directly affect the people who are surrounding you on a day-to-day basis. Again, that's what John Taylor Gatto did, which I found so admirable, was he would try to get his school kids to affect change with the the localist form of government, with the school board or with uh, in, in a borough of New York City. And I think that that is something that, um, is a good, you know, you do develop some skills when you learn to to politically protest. And these these are probably transferable skills to other parts of life, especially re- regarding organizing groups and leadership. Um, and s- but doing it on a scale that like a kid can actually, um, you know, grasp and comprehend on on a smaller scale first before leveling up to the national level stuff, especially when when large scale media is involved, and it can quickly become this, you know, (laughs) this thing that's spiraling out of control and where you feel this sense of like, wow, the whole world is looking at me, that that can really uh, derail your your positive intentions that you begin with. Um, So that's all I have to say about that. Well, I think it's interesting what you mentioned about Gatto and also what you said about Berkeley, uh, a place where protests take place for the sake of protest. I think one is kind of role playing, right, where it's like role playing effectiveness or role-playing having an impact. And what Gatto was doing was actually teaching kids to recognize and appreciate their own ability to make change and and to witness tangible results of their action. Yeah. And that's what's empowering when you do something and you actually get results. And when you're just screaming into the void, that's not an empowering experience. That's an infuriating experience. And, yeah. and so I, I agree with you. Something where you actually have a chance of affecting change, I think is much better for for young people. It's the idea of operating in the sphere that you control as well, you mm-hmm. know, which limits the amount of smallness or ineffectiveness that you're going to have. You know, you learn to start in the places, certainly with yourself, and then you can expand that to your immediate social circle, your family, your community, maybe a larger political context from there. But that's a that's a really good way to build out instead of starting at some incredible distance away from self and trying to make some change that way. And, and I feel like there's a direct correlation here, Brett, with being an educator. And yeah. this is one of the main reasons that I chose not to pursue uh, public school uh, jobs, because I realized pretty early on that I would be fighting this massive beast of a system on so many different levels. And if I wanted to affect direct change and get immediate feedback, I had to go private and had to do something that was completely divorced from the public school's laws and regulations. Exactly. I had the same experience. You know, it was being in graduate school that taught me that. And just like we talked about this in the last show, just listening to the experiences of people who were already in that system, I knew that I would be powerless there. I knew that I would have virtually no control over something at the time I was incredibly passionate about. I wanted to be a history teacher. That was like my first step. 
uh, in my career. There were other steps that I had planned after that. Like eventually I was going to be a principal <laughs> of a public school. My goodness. But, um, you know, I wanted a career as a history teacher first and I loved the subject and I very quickly became aware of the fact that um, I wouldn't be teaching the way that I wanted to teach in a public school. And that was one of the one of the things that led to me changing directions. But we're transitioning now, and this is this is a really good segue actually into this path to being educated, which I think you and I would agree is self-directed learning. We're already talking about it in a lot of ways. You have identified both in your book and in the article that you wrote um, what it means to be educated. Uh, the attributes of self-directed learning. Sure. So I think some basic psychology is in order. Uh, there's this widely accepted theory of human motivation called self-determination theory. And mm -hmm. it asks the question, what makes people act with intrinsic motivation and what doesn't? And it's pretty clear that you need three ingredients to be intrinsically motivated. You need to have autonomy, so actual freedom to make choices. You need to have mastery or, or competence, which means the ability to go deep into a subject. And you need to have purpose or relevance or in the original theory, it's called relatedness, uh, essentially connection and, and relevance. And so, I mean, just with the most cursory examination of most traditional school systems, you realize that students lack autonomy. They lack the chance to go deep into anything and develop mastery. And they lack relatedness. They lack any connection to the subject material. They're just doing it for this very abstract, far-off goal that their parents and teachers and the rest of society have all agreed is important. But it, there's no tangible connection, or, or very seldom there is. When people first hear about the idea of self-directed education, or maybe more specifically unschooling, a lot of them will say this kind of hands-off approach it seems very simplistic. It kind of sounds like it's for hippies. But, you know, how did you, how did you really dig into the science and align the science with this idea of education? I think a lot of people who enjoy reading articles about motivation or psychology, uh, I mean, they are on board with things like deliberate practice, which is all mm -hmm. about how do people build skills. And essentially, if you think about trying to teach yourself an instrument, for example, you can practice all day long and really not get better at that instrument. Or you can do a different kind of practice, which the author of these studies, Kay Anders Erickson, calls deliberate practice, which is really intense lessons that give you instant feedback that are tailored to your ability level and that you can do over and over again until you get it. It's, it's like having a guitar coach come in and be like, okay, you're struggling with the A and D chords and your finger positioning is wrong. Uh, try putting your fingers in this position and do this five times. And once you get it, then we're going to move on to the next like mini lesson. Um, right. When right. most people learn about deliberate practice, they're like, yeah, that's, that is how I learn when I'm learning very effectively and intensely. Uh, similarly, when they learn about flow, which is, I'm not talking like hippie flow, whatever that means. I'm talking flow, the psychology theory popularized right. by this guy with the impossible name to pronounce. I think it's Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And, you know, he describes the state of a very high performance. You might think of a rock climber who is in the state of flow where a sense of personal identity is lost. Your work and you become one and the same. Kind of this concept of time vanishes. You're performing at an extremely high level matched to the challenge. And again, you can describe this to people and they're like, yeah, that's 
that's an experience I've also had. And all of these experiences line up with intrinsic motivation. And then when you start looking at kids in school and realize that they don't have flow experiences, that they are not doing deliberate practice, that they are doing uh, another way to think of this is uh, through the concept of deep work. Uh, there's a great book written by Cal Newport, the computer science professor and productivity guru, and he distinguishes between deep work and shallow work. Shallow work mm. is something that I think of it as any work you can do while also scrolling through Instagram at the same time. <laughs> right, it's it's right. logistical work. It's stuff you can do while distracted, and it doesn't create much value. Um, and deep work is the stuff that requires your total focus and concentration. And this is the stuff that the robots and software cannot yet do. It, it is a uniquely human activity. You know, thinking about com composing m music or working on a mathematical derivation. You know, these are still things that, that humans can do that will not yet get taken over by, by the machines. And, and they're all, we're all pretty much talking about the same thing. And it's all intrinsically motivated. And this is the, the special sauce of, uh, of human learning. And so much learning can happen so rapidly when somebody has these ingredients of autonomy, mastery, and purpose or relatedness. That's when they get into the deep work state. They can do deliberate practice. They can be in flow. And incredible amounts of work can happen in a short period of time. And the opposite is mostly what happens in school which is being distracted, essentially being able to do everything that the teacher's asking you to do while flipping through Instagram, which I think is what does actually happen. So these, these three needs, when they're met, you can then elevate from there. And these three ideas are you have control over your own actions in a way that I guess the second one would be you're able to improve and build towards mastery. And the rhetoric or the sharing or the communication uh, or the connection that makes those first two transportable? Yeah, I like the word purpose as a proxy okay. for the third one. Uh, but feeling like you have a reason for doing what you're doing. Now, with this being laid out, have you come to any conclusions about a general age where a child could start down a path of self-directed education? Seven years and three months. That's exactly when it can happen. Perfect. That's probably really good timing for some people out there. <laughs> uh, so a lot of people make the argument, all children are born naturally curious and they're self-directed learners until school beats it out of them. Right. I am not a fan of using that argument. I think it's pretty weak. I think that, uh, that childhood development stages are very distinct and the needs of, of different developmental stages are distinct. And so it's not like we always are going to learn in the same way. And that's the assumption behind saying, oh, kids are born creative and interested. And then, you know, the institution beats it out of them. I, that's too simplistic a narrative. Uh, so there's no clear age. Uh, I think that if you have to choose one metric for figuring out what kind of educational environment your kids should be in, uh, it's engagement. And if you have to choose a second metric, it's consent. And so that means that at some point in a kid's education, traditional school might be really appropriate. I think this is why, for the most part, elementary school is a, a place where kids often do want to go because they mm -hmm. are still in this parent-oriented, adult-oriented, you know, adults are people with facts about the world and they will make these facts clear to me and I want to learn about the world. And so they will happily go to school because they get to learn about the world and their friends are there too. Uh, and so 
that works at that stage. But then in middle school and high school, pretty much all of adolescence, when we become much more peer group oriented, when we are not so much interested in facts, but instead interpretations of facts. And, you know, this is all laid out 100 years ago by Maria Montessori. There's lots yep. of other child development theories, you know, that we could talk about. But mm -hmm. essentially, you go to the place where your kid is most engaged. And if your kid is sitting there bored and restless or they're resisting the work, then that's when you have to be courageous enough to say, we're going to look for any alternative, even if it feels really weird and out there and outside of our comfort zone and not what I did myself as a, as a child. Absolutely. Do you think there's any supporting personal attributes that help self-directed education? Like what makes a person desire and then value autonomy? What motivates somebody to work towards mastery? What motivates somebody to find and pursue a purpose? Are there other things in life that help all of this fall into place? I, I don't think so. I think that those are just basic human qualities, Brett. I think the mm -hmm. desire for autonomy is, is longstanding. The desire to be good at something instead of untalented is, is fundamental. And the desire to have some sense of purpose or re relatedness, sure. We, I mean, we can find exceptions to all of these. Maybe you have a cousin who never wanted to build any skills at all and is completely happy knowing nothing. Uh, you know, maybe we know someone who works at a job they have no connection to and they're like, whatever, it's just a job. I'm completely happy with it just being a job. Yes, those people exist. But uh, I think more to the spirit of your question, uh, I think the changes in the economy and the changes in the kind of work and labor that is that is demanded is what has largely contributed to so much educational anxiety. Just having sure. gone from, you know, from a world of largely hands on, largely agricultural labor into a highly industrialized world, which is still pretty hands-on, and now into a knowledge-based economy, I think that is where more of the stress comes from and, and where we say, well, is this kid really being capable? Is this kid capable of being self-directed? Because this other kid looks like they're doing a much better job with it. And the first kid might just be the one who is really made for working with her hands and, you know, would have been would have been a thriving you know, farm worker 200 years ago. And now is being told, sorry, that kind of job is not available to you because it isn't. That's, that's truth. Right, you, right. Need to, you need to do knowledge work. I think there, that's where more of these ideas about like, well, some kids can be self-directed and some can't come from. No, they can all be self-directed, but the needs of the economy make it tricky. So I think the kids being able to exist in an environment, and this is really, really, really crucial, where they are able to recognize and embrace a kind of freedom in action, freedom of associations, freedom of pursuit, but also uh, like this idea of self-responsibility. And you've, and you've written about this as well. Being able to appreciate these two aspects of life is also part of really being able to move down a self-directed path and succeed on a self-directed path. I agree. Uh, and that's you know, the principle behind how I run my unschooled ventures trips, which is more freedom and, and more responsibility. And, and I think everyone recognizes that these two have to come together. And a lot of times, highly progressive parents who are embracing something really far out there, like unschooling, which they, they see on a kind of liberty versus oppression axis, 
um, and they see that you know more liberty is is always the, the better thing. It's it's yes, but with that comes uh, the responsibility to to use your time uh, in a way that's that's worthy of this freedom. And and so this is why unschooling, for example, uh, as uh, kind of the most self-directed path that you can take as a parent. This is why unschooling is actually the most difficult thing to do with a kid because sending your kid to school and just outsourcing all of their education to this group of, of, you know, professionals and educators is the easy thing to do. And when you're an unschooling parent who is navigating, you know, this, this challenge of trying to support your kid while also kind of holding them accountable to what they said they're going to do, if you're this parent who's, you know, says, okay, you want to learn piano, I'm going to prepay for 10 piano lessons. And then after the second lesson, your kid's like, meh, my interests are no longer here. You know, you, you can't keep doing that forever. And that's where the responsibility comes in. And so it's, it's a very tricky balance. And, and it's a personal relationship between each parent and child or the other non-parental adults that, you know, that you bring into the situation. Uh, there's no formula for it, and, and that's what makes it so difficult. Uh, but the, the results are incredible, and, and that's why I've loved working with unschoolers for so long. Right. So you mentioned the, the general practice of unschooling, uh, unschool adventures. One of the reasons why I brought up this, these ideas of freedom and responsibility, I mean, both are, both are great examples, like learning how to appreciate freedom, but also learning how to handle responsibility. Unschooling provides it. The trips you do certainly provide it. But people... Also, as they're getting used to these ideas, they like tangible examples of where an environment like that exists, where those kinds of things are being fostered. So what are some educational alternatives that you're currently paying attention to and you're feeling excited about? The model that I'm most excited for is based on a center in Western Massachusetts called North Star. Have you ever had anyone talk about North Star on your program? Not in great detail. It's definitely been mentioned, but we we haven't done a show about it yet. Oh my gosh, you could do a show about it. Um, North Star is uh, started by two former middle school teachers who, like you know, many people who we talk about, are disgruntled teachers, and they said we can do this better, and they started mm-hmm. a nonprofit, and it was essentially a, a resource center, and they made it only for teenagers, first of all, like minimum age thirteen. And they offered all these classes and activities and drama groups, and they brought in college student volunteers to teach about their specialties. They had mentorship available from the staff members there, and it's 100% optional. And another thing that they do is that they're very clear that they are not a school. They say, listen, we are a resource center, a self-directed learning support center for your kid, but you're not allowed to send them here five days a week. We are only open four days a week. And, and that's not because they don't need the, the money that would have you know, come from extra enrollment. It's because they don't want anyone just dropping their kids off there and thinking of it as a school. And so to legally attend North Star, you actually have to register your family as homeschoolers with the state of Massachusetts. And then you can sign up and legally go to North Star just as you would you know, any sort of, you know, a YMCA thing or, or a sports club. Uh, it just is another option in the palette of, of self-directed learners. And you can sign up for one day a week, two days a week, three days a week, four days a week. It's a sliding scale tuition and they don't turn away anyone for lack of finances. Uh, and so it's like everything is possible and virtually nothing is required aside from playing along with their very basic 
you know, rules, you know, don't, don't scream, don't, don't break stuff, you know, be a good human right, being. Right. And is it, uh, as far as the, the management of the actual environment, is it similar to Sudbury? Does it have similar attributes or do they have their own unique way of functioning? You know, it's not super unique, kind of like Sudbury or Waldorf. They are just kind of a group of mostly former teachers and they make decisions, you know, based on what they think is is right with a little bit of input from the students. So no, it's not a full-on democracy like a Sudbury school is. Um, and they don't have any sort of wacky ideals that they're basing their stuff on like like a Waldorf school does. And mm-hmm. so it's it's just like a warm, friendly, inspiring place to come if you're a self-directed learner who doesn't want to be stuck at just at home. And, and that's the situation that so many people who are into the idea of self-directed learning uh, struggle with, especially in the adolescent years, which is that my kid is no longer satisf- satisfied just being at home, reading books, you know, learning online, doing that kind of stuff. They want to be out with other people, but they want to be out with other people without these arbitrary draconian restrictions that come with most school experiences. So do you have any like ballpark on what the tuition is for North Star? Yeah, I don't want to misquote. I think that it's uh, between two thousand and eight thousand a year on the sliding scale. Uh, they're on their okay. website. Yeah, they uh, follow the details, of course. And it's also probably dependent on how much you attend. Yeah, exactly. It's mentioned. based on yeah one days one day a week attendance up to four days a week attendance. Now, has this model been replicated beyond Massachusetts? Yeah, and that's what's exciting because about fifteen years ago, it was just North Star, and then right. they got more active in helping other people start similar centers. And they're not out here to make money. This is not a franchise. Uh, they don't want to have intellectual control over these other programs, kind of like Sudbury did for a long time before w- the recent explosion that happened. Um, right. And so Nor- North Star is, uh, is actively being replicated up and down the east coast of the U.S. There's a little bit of saturation in Canada. And now they're starting to make some first appearances on the west coast. And because we mentioned Sudbury a couple of times, and we're using this as kind of an introductory conversation for some folks, uh, Sudbury is a school that, as far as the actual relationship between students and or learners and adults, it's similar. Kids can go there. They engage in self-directed projects. The adults can act as guides. They can uh, get involved if the kids need uh, a certain kind of support. The school has a democratic form of uh, government where everybody gets to participate in all decisions uh, regarding the function of the school. Sudbury is a model that is also replicated not just all over the country, also also started in Massachusetts, but is all over the country. And there are versions, looser and looser versions of the Sudbury School, and ones that I think are more adapted to different cultures, both in the United States and beyond. So the the way the school runs is more, you know, aligned with a region or or the place that it is, or the needs of the people who are going there. Yeah, and Sudbury schools are wonderful, and they are the ones that I first read about when I went on my college reading binge, and mm. I, I think that they are highly accessible to people who are coming from traditional school backgrounds, because it still looks like a school, it still feels like a school, and uh, and you just need to make a few logical leaps into uh, this realm where which it's more it's more democratic and it's more freedom oriented Um, and and also there are a lot of schools out there which just call themselves free schools or democratic free schools but they essentially operate the same way 
as a Sudbury school. And my favorite place to find all those types of schools is through Aero, A-E-R-O, and uh, the Alternative Education Resource Organization. And they have a wonderful map on their website, a world map, where I think it's the best place to find all of the different democratic schools in the world. And so uh, I, I've found schools on there that no one has ever mentioned ever before, but yet they exist. And so there, there's often surprises to be found even in your neighborhood. Right. And I think this is an important part of the conversation because for, I, I think since the first time we started having conversations about alternative schooling, I recognized that for a lot of people who are frustrated with the public system, the jump from that 35 hours a week, physical building, uh, everybody goes, everybody knows what it is, everybody knows what it expects, to so something like unschooling, the jump is just too great a distance, right? Yeah, it's a chasm. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And understanding that there are many steps in between those two options is really helpful. And I've worked at schools like that through the years as a tutor, as a teacher. The, the physical location is there, and that's really good for people. But you can go there and get a look at what unschooling is like, what self-directed education is like. So even though that might be exciting and comforting for people who are starting to contemplate the possibility of a transition, I think there's still, and it's totally fair and totally understandable, there would be some apprehension about like, okay, well, at school, there's this checklist and eventually all of this stuff gets checked off and this is the stuff my son or daughter needs to know to be successful. There's no guarantee in some kind of self-directed learning setting that any of that stuff is going to be accomplished. If I wanted to send, say, my son to one of these schools when he was six, that's a long road, you know, to adulthood where a lot of things could happen that, you know, might not be uh, if I just let uh, this child be completely self-directed, it might not lead to a successful path. I think it's a super important and super common question, and I hear it in the form of, well, what if they have gaps in their education? What if they have big right. gaps? Like, what if they never learn U.S. history? That's pretty irresponsible uh, from a parenting perspective and a societal perspective. And I think that the first step in addressing this is being honest about what the standard is. And if the standard is, like, uh, you know, if you're thinking about not sending your kid to school, then the standard is other kids from your neighborhood and your social class who are going to the school, what do they know and what can they do after they've finished X number of years of schooling? And I've, a previous guest on your podcast, Brian Kaplan, I think really uh, eviscerated the assumption that, that schools do build meaningful skills and competencies that last uh, any, you know, any meaningful distance after the school experience is over. And, exactly. and I love, yeah. And he did a great job of, of just pummeling that idea. And so just think about how much the typical high school graduate knows about American history and then compare uh, any homeschooled kids who you know to that kid. And maybe, you know, I, I actually think the most uh, reasonable response to that would be both of them don't know much. And, and that's okay, right? Because they're, they're hitting the standard, at least, which is they don't know much about history. Uh, and then you can start right. asking the question, okay, if neither one of these kids is going to learn much about history, which one had like a less traumatizing experience for the past four years? Which one actually like had some joyful learning experiences? And maybe the homeschooled kid 
you know, because they did focus on just one thing. Maybe it's Minecraft. Maybe it's, you know, horseback riding or something a lot more niche and fringe. Uh, maybe they know everything about cryptocurrencies. Um, at least they've got that going for them. But often in traditional school, you are barred from going deep into mastery in anything. And you're barred not because someone says you're not allowed to study the stuff on your own at home, but, but because they suck up all of your time at home with homework and projects. And if you want to have any mm -hmm. sort of life, you, you just don't have the space in your life to go deep into anything. And so that's, that's one thing that self-directed learning does let you do. And it will it leave gaps behind. Like, yes, of course it'll leave gaps behind. And often those gaps will be bigger than the gaps with uh, traditionally schooled kids. But the idea is that by learning how to be intrinsically motivated and by exercising those muscles of being able to focus and you know do the deep work, do, actually uh, go deep into something when you want to, then when you the kid realizes that they have a gap, which is important mm -hmm. and significant, then they will be able to fill that gap in themselves. Absolutely. And they get the practice of appreciating freedom, embracing responsibility along the way, and meeting those emotional and educational needs of autonomy, competence, and relatedness that you've talked about. Uh, they don't get the checklist with all the boxes ticked off. But that, in the end, as, you know, you referenced what Brian Kaplan said, it doesn't necessarily mean they know any less. They know a lot more about the things that interest them, and they build a kind of confidence in pursuing new things based on the success they had in, in that smaller number of things that was thrown at them at public school. You know, I mean, that was kind of the justification. It's like school is mass exposure to just about everything that I guess you could want to do vocationally someday. So it's it's like yeah, a yeah, buffet. But except right? it's not, right? You know, that, that's the exactly. idea that we tell exactly. it's it, it, not true. Right. And certainly not true anymore. Certainly not true in the 21st century. Uh, and it's not, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that schools aren't keeping up at all with the changes in the world, but they're, but it's not happening in real time. The same problem exists in higher education, especially in smaller schools that are not very well funded. Not that funding solves all problems educationally, everyone. <laughs> I want to make that clear. But in higher education, it certainly does make more of a difference, especially with certain, you know, technical areas of study. Right. It's, it's not even that, the, that that schools are keeping up or not keeping up, because, you know, if a school is teaching the most recent uh, coding language, you know, great, wonderful. If it's not, I don't think that's really a, a tragedy either, because there's so much of learning, which is like learning the old stuff, like just reading old good books. That can mm -hmm. be an entire education in itself. And and we rightfully recognize that when people read like great literature, you know, probably something good is going to happen. The difference is that the, the unschooler or the alternative school student, when they do, if and when they do read great literature, they will uh, they will take far more out of it because it's done out of their own accord. And for all the rest of us who are like forced to read 1984, uh, sure, that, that's kind of the shotgun approach. Maybe uh, one of these books will be like, wow, this is really eye-opening. I'm glad that somebody forced me to read this. Uh, and a lot of the other stuff is just going to be more of the, the irrelevant, disconnected learning that you're just checking off the boxes. And so, you know, I say bring on the gaps in literature, bring on the gaps uh, in, in all of these great subjects, uh, at, because when they do discover these subjects on their own, which they are going to, because they're members of society and they have the internet and they have friends, uh, you know, they will actually appreciate and absorb it. Right. 
Absolutely. You know, another problem in school is the bell. You know, as far as like real deep engagement is concerned. The bell. Uh, yeah. Where, where um, else in life do we have such bells? Like, I, I want factories. an answer to this, to this question, Brett. Yeah, factories which don't really exist. A historical tour of a factory. You might get to yeah, hear right, a bell. Yeah, right, yeah, right. It's interesting. I worked at a pretty small private high school. Uh, it was big enough that we would switch classes. I taught history there uh, for a couple of years. The kids would move from my class to an English class afterwards, and we would actually, the English teacher and I, we would trade off. I would say, hey, if I can get these kids really engaged in this thing, can I have some of your class time? And I'll trade you some back if you are going to do some kind of like hands-on project where they're going to be up moving around and you need more time. But we don't have bells here. We switch classes at certain times, not at the command of a bell, but we do keep a schedule. So it was interesting to see how often this, this would happen that kids would be engaged and they'd want to stay. And these were kids who were not generally excited about school, you know, mm. but there'd mm -hmm. be times where they'd want to go to her class early or stay in my class late. And that was great, but that opportunity doesn't exist in school. And, and you're right, it certainly doesn't exist after school. The disappearance of, you know, middle school, even elementary school, free time. I've watched that with my nieces and nephews and how much worse it's gotten from, you know, my 17-year-old nephew to my eight-year-old nephew. How much mm -hmm. more of the younger one's time is eaten up. But one of the, the really important things to talk about as far as like a solution to the school problem is access to these opportunities. You know, I was doing a talk, uh, School Sucks Across America. I was in Colorado. I was in Denver and I was giving a talk and somebody asked me this question about, you know, the, the inner cities or more disadvantaged communities. And I was really, I felt like it was the right answer to give. I felt like it was an, an honest answer. Like what would the question was what would I do about this? It was an honest answer, but it was a really unsatisfying answer. As I kind of drove away from Denver, I was like, "Man, I wish I could have done better with that one." When I was asked how I would solve those problems, you know, I said, "Those are problems that need to be solved internally. That's not who I'm talking to on my show." It's true, but it's cold and it's dismissive. And like I said, I wish I could have done better. Yeah, and I think what's important here, you, you know, if we look at how things work in the market. It's always wealthy, privileged people who are the first users of new technology, new products, new services, when they cost the most, right? And then they get some adoption and the price goes down. Like, I'm very grateful to rich people who bought $10,000 TVs 12 years ago, right? Because that TV is $900 uh -huh. now. So they're the first adopters. And I think people who have the ability to do these things now are doing a service to the future because they're adopting these things, they're practicing these things. And they have the power through platforms, hopefully platforms like mine and yours, to show more people how these things actually work. And more people will adopt them and understand uh, that these opportunities exist. But I'd, I'd like to hear you speak to that. Yeah, I think that questions of access are really on on the minds of people who are starting alternative school programs. It, it kind of is, right. It's part and parcel. And that's why a program like North Star, who does not turn anyone away for lack of finances, who will create an individualized payment plan, which includes, it always includes some amount of work, um, you know, essentially compensated work on the part of the teenager, and then a little bit of a discount, and then some fundraising efforts on the parent's side. And I, I love their approach to it. Um, and that's what makes talking about certain things like the Sudbury Valley School or other kind of fancy alternative private schools challenging because they often need to charge, you know, somewhere upwards of six thousand, eight thousand, ten thousand dollars a year, sometimes a lot more. And of course, you know, a lot of people are going to look at that and be like, 
that's not for me and that's not for people who I know. And um, despite uh, that fact, I think that we still have it pretty good here in the United States and that's because of homeschooling laws. Um, so I've spent a good amount of time in Europe recently and there's a number of countries where homeschooling is either technically illegal or functionally illegal. And mm -hmm. that is where you really only have two choices. You go to an expensive private school, which you probably can't afford, or you go to the public school. That's it. There's right. no middle ground. There's no way of escaping. And so that means public school for almost everyone. Um, and in the U.S., we have this great legacy of uh, the crunchy granola left pairing up with the radical Christian right on the yeah. subject of homeschooling and all these laws being changed in the 70s and the 80s to the point where now it's legal in all 50 states. You never have to pay to homeschool. Um, you know, a handful of states, somewhere around a dozen of them, have these um, ongoing testing requirements where you need to prove that essentially you're not in the bottom 20th percentile of, of you know, kids in terms of normal academic standards. And for the rest of the states, including the mo biggest and most populous states like Texas and California, there are no requirements. You just tell the state I'm homeschooling or here in California, you say I've declared my my house to be a private school and my child is attending my private school. So they meet compulsory education laws. Uh, I think that the fact that we have this access to homeschooling is an incredible boon to anyone who wants to opt out of the traditional system. And mm -hmm. in addition to that, uh, community colleges are an incredible part of the U.S. higher education system, which offer a bridge between non-traditional uh, secondary school to higher education. Uh, you know, a high school diploma will not get you very far nowadays, but still a college degree will get you, uh, you know, all sorts of jobs and open all sorts of doors. And so the fact that you cannot go to high school, you cannot have a high school diploma, but you can still go to college via the community college system is incredible. And so I think the first step is recognizing how much access and privilege um, everyone already has, at least here in the U.S., uh, regardless of your income level. So people often talk about, you know, a, a kind of social responsibility to support the public schools, though, you know, especially if you're a more wealthy, privileged person. Oh, my gosh. This argument drives me crazy because the idea is that your kid is smart and their smartness is going to rub off on other kids. And so you are morally obliged to keep them in the public school system. Mm. And I, I just think that's terribly collectivist. And, yep. and, and it's nothing that any parent is going to be deeply motivated to do, first of all. So it's, it's impractical. Uh, but also, I think for the same reason that you mentioned earlier about early adopters, um, what you know parents of wealth and privilege can do and do do already is they experiment with alternatives, and they kind of are they're that first marketplace test on anyone who's coming up with some crazy new idea about alternative education, and they will essentially run the test, and if it works, then the program will thrive more. And when the program gets big enough, then it can start having the resources to offer access to people, you know, essentially offer scholarships. And right. I, I think that's the, the progress of, of alternative educational history. And yes, some of these programs are going to end up being giant 
charter school programs or, uh, you know, things that, that still to our, our tastes are, are not very desirable. But that's still better than only having the choice between, you know, kind of you know, traditional government-run public schools or super expensive private schools. We still have it pretty good here. And, and char- charter schools are part of that, that mix too. You know, I'm glad that we have charters and magnets and that there's even that level of basic experimentation that is still funded by the public system. So if there's people who are listening still feeling apprehensive about making a change like this, and there's lots of people who aren't in a position to make a change like this right now, are there any guidelines to a more self-directed, enriching, happier experience for their children? Yeah. The one thing that anyone can do, regardless of your position in life, is to stop thinking or, or think less of your child as, as a golem. You know, a, a golem is a, a, in Jewish folklore, it's a being that's shaped out of mud or clay. And mm-hmm. it's essentially this inanimate being, which is completely obedient to its master. And when we consider that that we can shape our kids in such significant ways, we then feel that we are obliged uh, to ensure their outcomes. We, we feel that we as, as parents and educators are, are totally responsible for their futures. And, and I think the social science just does not uh, bear that out. And so any way that uh, a parent can say, um, I'm going to give my kid a little bit more autonomy, I'm going to release uh, some of the control. That doesn't mean you have to give up on parenting. That doesn't mean you have to give up on instilling responsibility and values in your kid. But if you can stop fiddling with the dials so much and be like, I'm going to trust my kid when they say, I'm bored out of my mind. Or I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt when they say, I'd much rather be working on uh, you know, learning this instrument right now than doing these stupid endless math sets. And, and when you ask yourself, like, is it worth it for me to shove these math problem sets down this kid's throat and create this giant conflict and crisis in our house when I don't even believe that this math is necessary for their, right. their future survival? Or, you know, it doesn't have to be taught this year. This kid could pick this up a few years later from now. Just moving in that direction, uh, I think, is something that everyone can do, even if you are stuck in a school where you don't want to be and where your kid doesn't want to be, but you have no other options at this moment. If people want to learn more about your work, your website is blakebowles.com. The article that we've been discussing today is What Does It Mean to Be Educated? And it's available on the Alliance for Self-Directed Education's website. That's right. You also have a book that relates to today's topic of conversation. The Art of Self-Directed Learning. And I've got a a, a podcast, just like you, Brett, called Off Trail Learning. And I also do one-on-one coaching for a a select number of teens and their parents. Uh, I I recently relaunched this. It's called Indie Guidance Counselor. I want to be the guidance counselor for all of the highly independent (laughs) and non-conformist young people out there. I love that. That's awesome. Thank you. It's all on BlakeBowles.com. Excellent. Well, Blake, thank you so much for coming on and having these two conversations. This was part two. So if you're listening to this and somebody passed this show along to you, and if you want more on Blake's background, it is at SchoolSucksProject.com as Blake Bowles Part 1, Episode 550. Thank you so much, Blake. Thanks, Brett. Take care.